Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. So glad that you guys are all here this morning. We are going to continue our series uh, through this letter to the Philippians this morning. And I want to start this morning talking about the power of purpose. In the most basic sense, purpose is all about our why in life. It's the reason why we're here. It's the reason why we pursue certain things, why we sacrifice and endure in the ways that we do. And whether we are fully aware of it or not, purpose holds tremendous power in our lives. Because if you think about it, purpose provides clarity. And so for one thing, it provides clarity of meaning. So purpose then clarifies the meaning of our existence. It clarifies the meaning of our relationships, our work, even the challenges that we face in the midst of all of these things. But purpose also provides clarity of direction. It clarifies where we're headed in life and who we are trying to become. And the truth is, research is helping us see the importance of purpose more and more, both in our lives in general and in vocation in particular. For instance, I read this article in Forbes this past week that reported the average person is going to spend an estimated 90,000 hours on the job in their lifetime. If you hate your job, that's the most depressing statistic imaginable. 90,000 hours of your life spent doing something that you don't really want to do. Now, if you are a parent or a partner who works in the home, it's obviously far, far more than that. And I would, I would guess that the amount of time investment that we just talked about is why 9 out of 10 people said they would be willing to take a pay cut if it meant the opportunity to invest in more meaningful work. The problem is only 34% of employees report feeling engaged at work. And I bet if we were to take a poll in this room, we'd probably get a number pretty close to that. 34-ish percent of us would say like, yes, I feel highly engaged in my work. Now, what's crazy is that lack of engagement that we see costs U.S. companies an estimated $500 billion a year annually because of people either showing up late or calling in sick or just not being engaged in the workplace. And listen, at this point, we're only talking about the power of purpose in our vocation. Now just consider our lives in general. How many of us genuinely live with a sense of clear purpose? How many of us wake up every single day convinced that we are locked into the life that God intends for us? How many of us live with a sense that we are playing a meaningful part in God's cosmic plan that is so much bigger than we are? I think the only honest answer is not very many. Instead, I think the majority of us are drifting. 
And so it feels like we are living life, drifting in a lifeboat in the middle of an ocean, but we have no oars. And because we have no way to direct our boat, we live at the mercy of the wind and the waves of life. We, have, we are drifting because we lack deliberate intention of purpose that drives us toward God's plan for us. Now, all of that is the bad news. I've already acknowledged that many of us come in here feeling battered this morning. So you're like, thank you for the very encouraging start to this message. So listen, that's bad news, but there is good news. God has not left us without help. As we immerse ourselves in the world and the message of the scriptures, we can discern God's purpose for our church and for each of our lives. And our text this morning provides help in this direction. As we come back to Paul's letter to the Philippians, let me just remind you of the situation from which Paul writes. Remember, due to his preaching and his teaching about Jesus, at the time of writing this, Paul is under arrest. He's either in Rome or Ephesus. We're not 100% sure. And while he was sitting there in prison, other people who claim to also follow Jesus are actively working to undermine his life and his ministry. And most concerning about his situation is that Paul really did not know which direction that his life was going to go. He could be released or he could have been executed. And so on paper, in short, Paul's life is unraveling. If you think about it, most people who might find themselves in a situation similar to Paul's would be rethinking so many of the decisions that had put them in a position like that. How, how, how did I get, get here? Where, where did I go wrong? Why would God let this happen? If he loves me and he cares for me, how could he let me end up here? And I would argue that all of those questions would be natural and many of us have asked questions like that at some point in our lives. But what's amazing about Paul's example to us this morning is that he doesn't ask any of those questions. He's not undone by his circumstances, even though they were objectively traumatic. And do you know why? Because Paul lived with a clear sense of purpose. And so let's dig into these verses together this morning, and let's talk about the power of living with God's purpose. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, do me a favor and open up to Philippians chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, if you just open up to the beginning, there should be a table of contents in your Bible, and just find uh, Philippians and then turn there. That's the easiest way. We're going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to pick us up in verse 21 together this morning, all right? Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we read this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So, I don't know about you, but I find these verses to be some of the most unrelatable sentences in the entire scriptures. 
And not, not because they're difficult to understand, but because if I'm honest, I'm not sure I can actually find myself in them. See, what Paul's doing here is he's weighing out these two possibilities in his future. His imprisonment was going to result in one of two destinies, and what's so challenging to me is how he is honestly torn between the two. It seems like a real easy choice to me. But Paul's conflicted and torn between these two options. So it's kind of like we're reading Paul's uh, pros and cons list. Uh, We've probably at some point um, all had to make a decision where we had to weigh the pros and cons of it. I mentioned last week that we're looking for a new house here in Salt Lake, but at the same time, so are many other uh, of our friends who moved here to help us start Ridgeline. And so this week, I went to see uh, a townhome that Pastor Tyler is considering leasing and, and moving into. And so we went and we walked through this. And then afterwards, we had this long conversation about the pros and the cons of this actual move or staying where he is. So, I mean, moving, I think we'd all agree with this. Moving in general is a giant pain, right? And so that, that like takes up a lot of space on the cons list, just that one thing. One of these two spaces has better living and entertaining space, but the other one has small bathrooms. And if you know Pastor Tyler, you know he loves himself a nice bathroom. He's a man of few luxuries, but the bathroom is one of them. Specifically the shower head. There's something deep inside of him that loves a good shower head. So there's pros and cons in that. His apartment that he's in right now is nice, but it involves entering this hallway. And this is pretty commonplace in many apartments, but it involves entering this hallway that always kind of smells like the dumpster of all the world's foods at once that has then been covered with some kind of weird air freshener that is not effectively doing its job. So that's a big con. Uh, He also has foot traffic that he can hear above him and around him all the time, and so that's a con. But maybe most important, this move would put him closer to a better Costco, which if you know him, that could wipe out all the cons, okay? (laughs) Nothing is like, there's a tent closer to the Costco. He's like, I'm in, I'm in, whatever it takes. My point is just that we've all had to look at two options before, and we've had to weigh the pros and the cons. But here's what I think is so unique about Paul's list. He looks at both options and he seems to only see pros. His first possibility is being released from prison and continuing on in life and ministry. And this is what he means when he says to live is Christ. If he lives, he gets to continue to work with Christ to see fruit born out of his own life and ministry. And he seems to believe that that's what's going to happen because it was going to mean fruitful work for him. Paul was also convinced that it was more necessary for these friends that he had at Philippi so that they could continue to progress spiritually and experience joy. And so he, he seems to believe God's going to release him and to allow him to continue serving. So the life column for him is filled with all these pros. Now his second possibility is death. His imprisonment could very much end in execution, which we would all assume should be a clear con, right? It just seemed like, I don't know anyone that would not be like, okay, I have uh, death and life. Which one's better? Especially by execution, my goodness. But he looks at death and he sees something very different. He acknowledges that his imprisonment could very well end in execution, 
And apparently, Paul was convinced that if and when he was executed, and when he drew his last breath, and when he closed his eyes for the last time, he would then open them in the physical presence of Jesus. And as a result of that, that was a massive pro for Paul. And he even admits that's his preference. He says, I long to depart. Don't forget, depart does not mean like float away into the clouds. He's saying, I long to experience death so that I can be with Christ. And the truth is, most of us cannot honestly say that. I just don't know. And maybe I'm the only one in the room, and so I'll be lonely today. That's okay. But many of us really struggle to relate to Paul's predicament, where he looks at these two options of a life of ongoing labor with Jesus on the one hand, and then death resulting in eternity in the presence of Jesus on the other. And he says, I am torn between the two. I'm just not sure I can say the same. And I think there's two reasons for our inability to be torn like this. On the one hand, many of us don't live with the urgency that the purpose of Jesus demands. And so we don't really view life as an opportunity for fruitful labor in in our purpose like Paul. We don't see every day as an opportunity to enter more deeply into relationship with Jesus. We don't see every day as an opportunity to display and declare Jesus in a dark and damaged world. Instead, we're prone to pursue our own comfort at virtually every every turn and at all cost. But I think there's a second reason that we're not always torn between these two options that we see in Paul. And that's because many of us love this world so much that if we're honest, we're not anxious to be with Jesus. Instead, we're quite content to live with the pursuit of everything that this world has to offer us. And as a result, we don't long to be with Christ. We so fill our attention and our affection with all of these other things that there's no space for longing to be with Jesus. And so regardless of maybe which way you lean, our problem is ultimately the same. Our problem is our love for Jesus is just too small. It's too low. Instead, we long for and love all these other things. And the truth is, until Jesus is our deepest desire, until he truly is the king of our lives and our chief pursuit, we will always struggle to resonate with this phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And our path toward loving Jesus more starts with admitting that we don't love him as much as we should. And so I want us to make a deal together as a church. I want us to resist the religious tendency to pretend that we love Jesus more than we really do. I hate that. And I, you know what? I think God hates that. I think God hates religious pretending. You know why? Because he sent his own son to declare war on it. So no pretending. If we really want our love for Jesus to grow, we have to admit that we don't love him to the degree that we should. We're certainly not convincing him, and I would argue that we will never see true love grow if we don't acknowledge its absence or its lack. 
All right, so, so Paul is feeling pretty certain that he's going to be released and he's going to have the chance to see the Philippians again, but he, he doesn't want their faithfulness in Philippi to hinge on his presence, whether or not he is released. And so notice what he says next. He says just one thing, so he's clarifying something here. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents, This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. So I want you to notice that Paul really reminds them here of two things. First, he reminds them of their true identity, and then secondly, he's going to remind them of their sacred responsibility that comes with that identity. So first, notice that Paul starts with their true identity. He refers to them as citizens of heaven. So this is, this is like way more a profoundly practical designation than it was a poetic one. Because remember, at the time of Paul's writing, Philippi had become a Roman colony that was founded primarily by military veterans. So there was an immense amount of political pride that was commonplace in Philippi. They were a Roman city. And Rome was the military powerhouse of the day. And so as a result, they were very proud of that status and their place in it. And so Paul wants to make sure that they don't forget that while in many ways it was a blessing to be part of such a powerful empire, their Romanness was never supposed to take priority over their true identity. They were followers of Jesus, children of the one true God. And as a result of that, they were citizens of of heaven before they were ever citizens of Rome. And so as a result of that, anywhere that their allegiance to Rome conflicted with their allegiance to Jesus, they had to adjust. And so I hope that you can see the timeliness of this for you and I, because in many ways we live in the new Rome. And just like living in Philippi was a blessing because it was a Roman city, being an American is a blessing in so many ways. The freedom that we have is a gift that many people around the world do not have. But also like the Philippians, we need that political pride kept in check. So we can and we should love our country where it honors Christ. And we should also labor to see it change where it does not. And in a very real sense, even we are outsiders, exiles, and alien residents, regardless of where we live, because our truest citizenship is with Christ. And we can never allow America to ascend the throne that belongs to Jesus alone. Which is why we don't have American flags in our auditorium and why we don't worship America, even when the 4th of July falls on a Sunday, even though so many churches did. Because we love the country that God's put us in. But it's not our home in the truest sense. Jesus is. And so furthermore, Paul says that this true identity as citizens of heaven comes with a sacred responsibility. 
Paul says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I think that's kind of a confusing sentence. And so I think it's really important that we start with what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that you have to prove yourself worthy of God's grace prior to being shown it. He's not saying you need to prove that you are worthy of this gospel before Christ gives it to you. Because can I just tell you, you're not. And neither am I. God has never saved anyone due to their own work or due to their own labor. Everyone that God saves is due to his own grace and to his own mercy. It's because of him. It's not because of us. And so if he's not saying that we have to prove we are worthy of God's grace prior to receiving it, then what is he saying? Well, Paul is calling for, what Paul is calling for is the proper response to the unimaginable gift that we have been given in grace. See, what you do with a gift discloses the level of value that you place on it. Think about that for a second. What you do with a gift discloses the level of value that you place on it. So we've got this theme of of homes, so let's stick with that for a second. I, I want you to imagine that someone gave you a beautiful home. So you, like, you don't have to save for a down payment. You don't have to take care of the mortgage, the HOA, or anything else. This home does not need any improvement. It doesn't even need an ounce of remodeling. It's truly move-in ready. So just imagine you're just simply handed the keys and the home is yours. Think about the way, I hope anyways, that that would inform the manner in which you cared for and treated that space. I mean, my guess is you wouldn't You would treat it like the gift that it was. Hopefully you wouldn't neglect it. Hopefully you would not take that for granted. Hopefully you wouldn't trash it in some way. You would want to be a good steward of this amazing gift that you'd been given. What you do with a gift discloses the level of value you place on it. And this is what Paul's getting at. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given the most amazing gift imaginable. You have been given the gift of new life. You have been given the gift of the forgiveness of your sin. You have been given the gift of the removal of your guilt and the promise of a perfect and pain-free eternity with Jesus. That's been given to you. And what you do with that gift discloses the value you place on it. And so when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's saying this gift of grace that you've been given, it deserves a life devoted to God's purpose for you. And Paul says that this means something specific. Paul tells them that if they're living into this gift in a way that is worthy of it, he's going to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. To live worthy of this gift that we've been given means that we as a church family have to be united as one. And as a result of that unity that exists inside of our church, we will have the courage to both declare and display the message of Jesus. That's our purpose. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't ever need to have one day of your life where you wake up in the morning going, "Mm, I wonder why I'm here. It's this, our purpose is to know Jesus 
and make him known. If you want to know why you woke up this morning and you drew breath, it's to know Jesus and to make him known. If you want to know why God has you living in Salt Lake, how many of you ever wondered about that? God, what am I doing in Utah? He puts you here to know Jesus and to make him known. If you want to know, God, why did you give me the spouse that I have? No one has to amen that one. Lord, why do I have the job that I have? Why do I live in the neighborhood that I live in? Why do I have the friends that I have, the kids that I have, to know Jesus and make him known? And for us, that means fighting for unity by keeping our focus on the main thing. And listen, our main thing is not our politics. It's not our personal preferences. Our main thing is not our theological pet topics or our preferred philosophy of ministry. The main thing is the good news that Jesus Christ invaded this broken world and sacrificed his own life so that we could be restored to relationship with him and healed. This is God's purpose for us, to know him and to make him known, even when we are up against opposition. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you, if you have like a real Bible rather than the fake digital one that's on your phone, circle that word granted because I'm going to come back to that in just a second. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Now, I want to be honest, when I first read this earlier this week, I really had to wrestle with it. Because if you pay attention to what Paul actually says, it's hard. Notice he says, it has been granted to you to suffer for him. Now, it's even worse when you look at the Greek word that we translate granted. Because the Greek word that we translate as granted literally means graciously given. Think about that statement. Paul says, it has been graciously given to you to suffer for him. Now, I first read that as if Paul was talking about suffering in general. And so I have a really hard time with that. I mean, this this week, like every week, I spoke with many people who are suffering. Just this week alone, I talked with someone who was sexually abused as a child. I met with an individual who is coming out of a severe multi-year season of mental and emotional abuse. I had the privilege of praying for a woman who is dying of cancer, and yet another person trying to recover from severe religious trauma in their lives. And listen, it was a slow week for me. So when I first read this, I struggled because I I don't know how to reconcile the severity of this suffering that I am privileged to have a front row seat to observe and experience sometimes in my own life. I don't know how to reconcile that with, with Paul claiming that it could somehow graciously be given by God. And so here's the good news. Paul's not talking about suffering in general. 
And it's really, really important that we allow the context to constrict the meaning of this sentence. Because otherwise, we're going to end up with this really distorted theology regarding the character and nature of God. So keep in mind the context here. Paul is talking about the inevitable opposition that comes in response to living into the purpose for which God has called us. He's talking specifically about a type of suffering that comes with what we call persecution, which is being opposed due to one's commitment and love for Christ. So he's echoing in a very real way the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, you might remember Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So it's not all suffering in general has been granted to us as this gracious gift from God. Not that God cannot and does not bring good out of all of our suffering, but that's just not what Paul's saying here. He's specifically talking about persecution. And the reason that Paul can say, God has graciously given us the privilege of suffering persecution for Christ, is that we get to share in the redeeming work of Jesus when we do. Jesus, remember, stepped into human history to reverse the curse of sin. And he was opposed and he suffered. And when we suffer... In service to Jesus, we enter into that redeeming work with him, which is a privilege. We get to play a part in reversing everything that is broken in this world. And so Paul isn't saying that God graciously gives us suffering in general. Paul's also not saying that suffering for Christ is fun. He's saying that there is a dimension of our relationship with Jesus that deepens when we endure opposition together. And so the more time that we get to spend in Paul's mind here, I don't know about you, but the more maturity and humility I find to admire in him. But you know, the real question is, how do we move from admiring Paul's example to imitating it. Because if Paul were here, he'd be the first to say, I'm not looking for admiration. Paul's after imitation. And so this is worth considering because I think the greatest liability of meeting together like this every single week and being taught the scriptures is that we would fall prey to the myth that if we just had a better understanding of the Bible, that, that, that we would better live God's way. But you know, the truth is, information alone changes nothing. Which is why, I mean, how, I, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian for a real long time. I've known so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who seem to know the Bible inside out, and they suck on a major scale. And sometimes are the least Jesus-y people I've ever met. Do you know what that tells us? It doesn't mean that there is something broken in the Bible. It teaches us that information alone changes nothing. Only information that is implemented into daily life transforms us, period. And so I can do the work to teach, but only you can do the work to implement what you've been taught. 
And so the truth is, in about 60 seconds, my part of this work is done. And this is where your part begins. It's going to be a little more than 60 seconds, okay? Some of you are very, very literal. So don't set a watch. I got just maybe 120 seconds, okay? But listen, here, here's, where, here's where we start. We have to learn to allow God's purpose to be the lens through which we perceive all of life. Like many of you, I, I have to wear contacts or glasses in order to be able to see clearly. And without that lens, my vision is blurry and I get headaches and I see this distorted version of my surroundings. But isn't it crazy how just looking through the right lens changes all that? The right lens helps me to see things the way they actually are rather than the disorienting way that my eyes naturally perceive them without this lens. And the point is that God's purpose is like that lens. It can move us from aimless drifting to deliberate intention. Our purpose is to know Jesus and to make him known. And so the question is, where do you have the opportunity to further order your affection, your attitude, your time, your relationships, your money, and your resources around that purpose? Let's move from admiration to imitation. Let's live to know Jesus and to make him known. Because that's why we're here. That's why our church exists. That's why you exist. And so let's live up and into that purpose. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have not left us to aimlessly search for purpose and meaning and value and direction. One of the many intents behind your word is to help us to understand why we're here, to understand who you are, who we are, to understand what you're doing in this world and in our lives. And while it does not provide us clarity and answers to everything, what it does make clear is that you created us to know you and that you were so intent on that happening that you sent your own son, Jesus, to rescue us from this life spent apart from you. And so Jesus, we thank you that you lived perfectly in our place, that you died, that you rose again so that we could be restored to relationship with you, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be healed You did all of that for relationship. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would see our chief priority and purpose in life as being one of knowing you, not about you, but knowing you. And Lord, we as a church exist to help other people step into that relationship too. And so we need the help of your spirit Help us to love you above everything else. Help us to build the foundation of the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we speak and the way that we behave. Help us to build all of that on you. 
and where there is misalignment in us, would you reveal that? We need your help. So speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.